Stay connected this winter with this unbeatable deal from BreezeLine. Get reliable, fiber-powered internet for just $19.99 per month with all-in pricing for two years. But that's not all. Your first month is on us. This deal gets better with a free modem and installation along with free Wi-Fi your way whole home coverage. Safeguard your network from cyber threats and keep all your devices connected and secured with this amazing offer. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires March 3rd, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. Welcome to the 13th episode of Love It or Leave It Back in the Closet. That song was sent in by Kim and Fred, also known as, uh, they're known as Shark Tits. That's what they're known as. Okay. We want to use a new song each week. If you want to make us one, send it to hey at cricket.com and maybe we'll use yours. You can also tweet it at me. Later in the show, we'll be joined by Osita Wenevu from the New Republic, Pod Save the Peoples to Ray McKesson, and we're going to hear from protests and listeners directly. But first, let's get into it. What a week. So, look, obviously this has been a very sad week for the country, uh, but I did just want to take a moment to tell you what I've been thinking about before we get to interviews and voices from the protest, because just thinking through what we've been seeing was useful for me. So, you know, over the course of the past week, you know, our country already reeling from an unchecked pandemic and the shutdown of our economy erupted in protest in response to the murders of George Floyd, Ahmaud Aubrey, and Breonna Taylor and an endless catalog of racist abuses in the justice system and incidents of unchecked police brutality and violence. And, you know, I feel like the question that's been on a lot of people's minds is, like, how did we get here? How did we get to the point where peaceful protests are attacked by police from a park in front of the White House to make room for an improv authoritarian to take a picture in front of a church, and peaceful marches across the country are terrorized by militarized, unaccountable police forces? How did we get to the point where unmarked soldiers stand guard in the nation's capital, lined up in front of the Lincoln Memorial, young people shot with dangerous so-called non-lethal bullets, pepper spray and tear gas fired into masses of human beings, marchers corralled and trapped, seniors shoved to the ground, video capturing the crack of their skulls. Uh, and, And I think the truth is that white people ignored police brutality, or at least many didn't take it seriously because they were conditioned to not care or to believe it was necessary, and it would never come for them. And I'm not saying all this to be self-righteous because I haven't lived my life like this is the emergency that it is. It isn't always front of mind because our entire society is built to make sure for people like me, for people who look like me, it doesn't need to be front of mind. And not just police brutality, but the broader disregard for the humanity of black and brown people. And that is true of most of the mostly white people listening to this. That is true of you listening to this. It's not just about confronting a Trump supporter at Thanksgiving. It is deeper than that. And it's harder than that. I went to the protest on Saturday and I was inspired and I was glad I was there and glad to see most in masks, even as I tried to remain socially distant because the coronavirus doesn't know the difference between a march against injustice and a MAGA hat who wants to get her nails done. And I saw how peaceful it was. And I saw the aftermath of police unleashed on peaceful protest in my neighborhood and the looting that followed. A bunch of restaurants and small businesses already hanging on by a thread were just able to reopen on my street and were destroyed. And that is sad. It's genuinely sad. And and I'm sad for the gay baristas at the Starbucks that's closed because they've been scattered to the wind. We don't know where they are. We hope they return. 
But any focus on destruction of property is a distraction from the destruction of lives at a moment when acts of looting or vandalism are being exploited to tar a vast peaceful movement by some of the worst voices in American politics. There is a genuine debate right now about how to channel this energy into real change. Police reforms that are needed right now to stop violence, reducing the role and funding of police and fundamentally reimagining the relationship between government and the governed, a broader conversation about injustice and opportunity. It's okay to be unsure. You know, I feel uncertain and it's all heightened because we're in the midst of a pandemic because so many of the ordinary outlets for conversation and interaction and kindness have been restricted. And by the way, also putting the health of protesters at risk. You know, I want to talk about whether Leah Michelle is racist or just shitty to everyone in person. I want to talk about Trump claiming he's a bunker inspector at the office. I want to talk about white people posting a black square on Instagram and then deleting it 15 minutes later because they got yelled at by black people on Twitter at a California pizza kitchen. I miss my friends. I do. But being out there, going back out there this week, being with people, seeing how many people are out there right now, and knowing that the protests nationwide have spurred charges against some of the police officers responsible for murder, though we know that in the case of Breonna Taylor, that hasn't happened yet. And the fact that these protests have helped create as a first step a shared sense of what is broken, even as many have lashed out to maintain a grip on a kind of power slipping away, that is important and that's a reason for hope in a dark time. So I just wanted to share that. At the top of this episode, you're going to hear from the protest. I recorded some conversations I had with people I met. Elisa, our producer, recorded uh, some conversations that she had. And I also was glad to be able to talk to Osita and DeRay about not only some of the reforms that are needed right now, but the larger context for this movement and these protests and what should come next. When we come back, we'll be joined by Osita Winevo from The New Republic. Hey, don't go anywhere. There's more of Love It or Leave It coming up. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Is there something I need to get off my chest? What is your outlet for working through the things that stress you out? Oh man, you know, I don't know. Pushing it down, <laughs> pushing it all the way down, getting it real down deep in there. Squish it. Squishing it, squishing it real tight. Fighting through it. <laughs> Gotta fight through it. Skinny jeans are for dads, fight it. You fight it, you push it down. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. <laughs> when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Not me. Not me. I'm running on rails. <laughs> Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. Uh, I said to my therapist just yesterday, I just feel like I don't have the, the, the attention span right now to focus on some of these longer term issues. And she's mm. like, you found a way to say that every session for the past five years. <laughs> If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Everybody needs therapy. You need therapy. I need therapy. Tommy needs therapy. Mm. We all need therapy. Mm -hmm. Visit BetterHelp.com slash love it today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash love it. And we're back. He has written for The New Yorker Slate and is a current staff writer at The New Republic. Please welcome Osita Wanevu. Hey. First of all, thank you for joining and having this conversation. I was struck by a piece you wrote that talked about collective amnesia that you've seen in the coverage of these protests. And, and so I just wanted to ask if you could talk a little bit about what you meant by that. Sure. So in the early days of the Floyd protests in Minneapolis, you had this big discourse about whether the protests were 
being conducted in a way that was politically productive, whether the looting and the vandalism you saw break out in some places was going to be um, destructive to efforts to get people to understand what was happening and why people were angry. It was going to overshadow the peaceful protests and so on. It was, to my mind, a replay of the kind of discourse you see time and time again with these protests where initially the reaction is very sort of fluid and explosive and spontaneous. There's a lot of hand-wringing about it. But ultimately, over time, things get smoothed out. You have a more controlled series of protests. And then people, in hindsight, say, well, this was obviously always going to be a good thing. The protesters were great. They were noble. Uh, they were very MLK-like. This is what happened in Ferguson. I mean, I remember I was working as an intern at Slate that August, and I remember trying to find uh, live streams and, and people on the ground tweeting about what was happening because it wasn't initially being covered by cable news media. But, you know, there was a lot of chaos in those early days. There was, there was looting. There was vandalism. There was all the stuff people have criticized about Minneapolis protests then, too. But I think over time, all of that has sort of been lost in our understanding and interpretation of what happened then. I think in very similar ways to how people sort of erase or elide the fact that, you know, the LGBT movement, for instance, uh, there was a riot at Stonewall that was very important in organizing that, gathering that. There were suffragettes who were radical and, you know, were engaged in property discussion and all this. And, and none of those things ever really define movements as a whole. You'd, you'd be hard-pressed to think about a movement that was always pure and everybody was doing the right thing in the eyes of opinion leaders um, from the get-go. There's, there's always a lot of messiness to it. And I think understanding what's happening now in response to the killing of George Floyd, in response to the years of instances of high-profile police brutality, if you really want to sort of get at the, the fundamental dynamics of the movement here, I don't think you can let yourself be distracted by expressions of anger and anguish that, that, that might seem radical to you uh, now, but in two, three years, I'm sure people will sort of say it wasn't that definitive. So because these protests are so vast, we've seen a wide range of policies being advocated. There's obviously calls to defund the police. There's targeted reforms that can reduce police violence right now. There's advocacy and something you've talked about around sort of targeting structural inequality in housing, education, the economy. Where do you hope the energy of these protests is directed. Where, where do you think is the most fruitful place to point this incredible amount of advocacy that we're seeing? Well, I think there are two levels. I think on one level, obviously, you have to talk structurally about policing in this country, whether there are small bore reforms that might make things a little bit better. You heard former President Obama talk a little bit about that yesterday. But also whether there are ways in which we should sort of more fundamentally rethink the role of policing in our society? Is it really right for us to have a particular institution that is the sort of catch-all place you go to if you are dealing with a problem? Should you be able to sort of get on your phone and call in a person who's going to come into a situation with a gun if somebody is accosting you in Central Park uh, over leashing your dog, as we saw uh, the other week? I think that's a question more and more people are kind of asking. Are there other models for how we can solve the problems that we have police solve right now are there rules for, you know, expanding uh, support for social workers and, and other kinds of professionals that, that might be better suited to dealing with, uh, you know, problems like addiction? If there are other ways in which we can bring in different sets of people to deal with social issues, that, that's one level. 
The other level is uh, something people have talked about for a long time. I mentioned in that piece, the Kerner Commission after the riots in 1967, in 1968, in the wake of another series of riots, publishes a report that says if you really want to get to the underlying causes of black anxiety and uh, despair and crime, you really have to talk about funding education adequately, desegregating our schools, making sure people have better access to economic opportunity big sweeping changes to address the fact that you have a, a population in this country that's been immiserated, repressed in every conceivable way for, you can say, hundreds of years. You know, it, it, that is the scale at which you have to think about addressing root causes. And so I think that ultimately, you know, you're going to see people talking about policing, but I think you're going to see the protests now compound conversations that were already being had in the Democratic Party about this scale at which Biden, if he's elected, will have to deal with some pretty big problems. This is a conversation people were having with coronavirus. I guess it seems like forever ago now, but just a couple of weeks ago, it was, you know, Biden is talking about dealing more structurally with American health care and inequities than he was talking about over the course of the primary. I think all of this is going to sort of compound that energy um, and that interest in crafting a more expansive presidency. I think you're going to have more and more people call for a, a larger set of solutions to the problems we're facing. You're seeing all these calls now about abolishing the police, defunding the police, and, and the reaction is, you know, from people who, you know, it's an unfamiliar concept to them. They're like, what, well, what are you, how are you going to manage, like, murders and car thefts and this kind of thing? And that's like a valid criticism, but there are all kinds of ways in which the police are sort of entrenched in people's lives and, and you know, in some places they're just sort of doing street patrols that, like, create situations uh, in which abuses can happen. And meanwhile, we have a deeply underfunded, under-resourced social services infrastructure in many, I think, most of the country. There's a balance that should be struck. And I think striking that balance means that you radically reduce the number of armed people you have in this country responding to basic problems. It's for a lot of people who are not familiar with the topic and are coming to the topic, to fund the police sounds so radical. Yeah, yeah. And when actually the policy is reform the police, demilitarize the police, and focus the police where actual armed uh, security, Situations armed are, yeah. safety officers are required. Yeah. Yeah. And for mental health interventions, addiction interventions, social welfare interventions, there's other conflicts between people in parking lots over parking spaces. There's a whole host of other responses that are possible. No, I think it's true. I mean, you, you have this conversation over and over again, I think, in democratic politics, especially over the past couple of years, where someone says something like abolish ICE, you know, and everyone is sort of like, well, that's, you know, nobody's going to go for that. It's going to lose you the suburbs. It's going to lose you this or that constituency. But then the response to that is, well, what can we do? Like, what, how can we move in this direction and sort of take some of the fundamental problems people are pointing at with that slogan? How do we take them seriously and get to a, a, a different set of policies? And so in the wake of that, you had people say, well, you know, let's reorganize ICE, or let's, let's sort of like see if we can resign some of these functions. Let's see if the organization or the agency needs as much money, etc." I think in the near term, that's what abolish the police, defund the police probably does. Yeah. Um, I think it probably pulls people to ask more fundamental questions than they might have been asking had people not sort of pushed for the more, more, more radical position. Um, but we'll see. I don't think that Joe Biden is going to run on defunding the police. I don't abolishing either. The police. I don't expect that uh, either. But, but I do think that the energy from activists is, is probably going to inspire pretty good conversations. And I look forward to them. It is extraordinary that the pandemic is still here. Yeah. The crisis set off by the pandemic is still here. That if Biden is able to win in November, 
he will be inheriting a set of problems as vast as any president in our lifetimes, maybe longer. This unrest seems like uh, these protests, this uprising against brutality and inequality is not going anywhere. The pandemic's not going anywhere. The economic dislocation's not going anywhere. What would it take for Joe Biden right now to make you and make others who are kind of pushing for a more progressive, more expansive, more left response? What would it take for you to feel as though Joe Biden is answering this call? I, I think it's a big question. It's a big question, but I also think there's a pretty easy set of answers. I mean, you're hearing things from the campaign now that should be encouraging to progressives in certain ways on a wide variety of issues. Uh, I think that policing may well be the next issue where he sort of tries to offer the, the left something in the wake of these protests. But the, the, the main thing that I am looking to hear isn't really a particular policy solution to a specific problem. What I want to hear from Joe Biden is how he is going to reform American democracy so that those policies will actually pass early next year in the Senate uh, so that they won't get struck down by Supreme Court that Donald Trump has now established a durable conservative majority on. I want to hear how the residents of D.C. are going to be offered representation within the next year so that you can't have a president just sort of steamroll over them and, and try to control their city with an occupying force. Like, these are, I think, structural issues that, you know, you heard some candidates talking about over the campaign more than uh, Joe Biden did. Frankly, you know, even though I was more supportive of, of Bernie Sanders, but even he sort of didn't really give the basic fundamental structural changes you would need to pass his policies sufficient attention. And I think that's a problem that, that Joe Biden has even more significantly. So that, that is the, the first thing. I want to hear from Joe Biden that he's going to come in and recommend to whoever the Senate majority leader is, if it's still Chuck Schumer when he takes office, that the Democrats, if they have a majority, eliminate the filibuster, move to simple majority, and start passing things that the majority of the people in this country want, and, and actually building a more responsive democracy. That's the only way he's going to get anything he wants to do done. So it's all well and good for him to say that he's moving left or in this or that issue. But if, if you haven't done that, if you're not pushing for that, if you're not making a case to the American people for why those structural reforms have to happen, I think he's going to have a very hard time actually fulfilling uh, the aspirations people have for his presidency. I do think tied to that too is something, something you've talked about. It's something that a, a lot of people are talking about right now, which is sort of our collective pain tolerance for the amount of injustice, emergency that we tolerate, and that some of that is what allowed someone like Donald Trump to come in, that mm -hmm. that we look past a lot of cruelty, we look past a lot of injustice all the time. You know, I've been to these protests, and in LA, you know, you see the diversity of the city, and I've been struck by the support along the way, by people honking their horns, people coming out of their windows, and also by the diversity of the protests. You know, when we talk about what this country can ignore, we're, we tend to talk about what white people have been able to either ignore or benefit from or like in terms of the lack of opportunity, the systemic oppression of people who didn't look like them to such an extent that it became normal, became acceptable. How naive is it to look at these protests, to see this sort of diverse young coalition that's out on the streets in these cities and say, this group of people doesn't want to go back to that. This group of people isn't interested in ignoring these problems anymore, that maybe there really is a deeper shift. I think it's definitely heartening to see all the different kinds of people who are in the streets now. You know, it's not just 
a small cadre of activists. It's it's a sort of broad assemblage of, of people who make up democratic coalition, people who aren't really that engaged with politics, um, coming together and saying that, you know, we can't stand for the way policing uh, has been conducted in this country anymore. And along with that, making it a broader set of demands, I think. I think this is also sort of a lot of pent-up energy about things that, that extend beyond policing. So all of that is very heartening, uh, especially for people who saw the end of the Sanders campaign and were kind of dismayed by it and wondered where all of the energy was going to go. Well, this is where a lot of that energy, I think, is, is gone. But ultimately, I think the onus is now on political leaders, elected officials, to sort of do something with that energy that will, again, sort of make it so that it matters that the majority of people are mad. Right now, we're not in a country where it matters that the majority of people are mad about American policing or climate change or health care. It doesn't. Like, you, you can win the presidency without winning a majority support of the electorate. You can win the Senate without getting majority support from the electorate. Um, there are all of these structures in place that make it so that even if you have millions of people angry about a particular situation, nothing will change unless you have fundamentally reconstituted certain institutions. So it's heartening to see people mad about the policy issues. And I, I just sort of wish that there was also a kind of, I don't know if you want to call it a protest movement or, or what, but also a kind of a set of demands from this crowd explicitly about reforming our institutions uh, and, yeah. and making it so that they are more systematically heard. Um, and, you know, the filibuster is not an issue that is going to <laughs> that, that gets people fired up necessarily, but it is like very, very important. And things like that are ultimately the key to whether this movement goes anywhere or whether it, it sort of falls by the wayside is another instance where millions of people were mad about something. They got in the streets, but nothing really fundamentally changed. We've seen it with gun control, you know, in the past couple of years is, yeah. is a huge example. It's also I mean, you don't even, you don't need to go to the national level. Los Angeles, New York City, these are cities where the popular majority is electing people who ostensibly agree or at least have paid lip service to a lot of these notions, a lot of the yeah. desire to reform police, to prevent police brutality. And yet there's this sort of anti-democratic force in these cities. And in a lot of times it feels as if the, um, the mayors serve at the pleasure of the police unions. There's something about these protests, it's, it, it makes sense that it would start on police brutality because it is such a stark example of an undemocratic force and a bunch of people all of a sudden saying, wait a second, we're in charge. Yeah, yeah. You know, one, one of my least favorite phrases in American politics is this is not a partisan issue, which, you know, inevitably is describing a lot of partisan issues. This is one instance where, like, genuinely policing in this country is not a partisan issue. You have democratic majority cities like Minneapolis, uh, like Baltimore, where you have these abuses happen in part because, as you say, Leaders in those places are often deeply enthralled to police unions and police as an institution. And so, you know, there's a frustration there that can't really be resolved by saying, well, you should go out and vote. These people have been voting for Democrats, you know, forever. So there's a lack of accountability here that is kind of structural. It's not just a matter of people going to the polls, although going to the polls is important. You have to make sure that there are people at the polls you can vote for who take a, a, a more structural view of why things have gone wrong and are really to push bolder forms. And, and frankly, it's, it's often not hard for those people to get ahead if you have um, establishment politicians sort of poo-pooing proposals that they see as radical about reforming the police. You know, if ultimately you're going to have to see uh, progressives, people on the left wing of the party, actually prevail in these elections against some of the uh, more entrenched leaders in some of these cities. 
Yeah. Either it's going to be people taking that power from them or the pressure from outside reminding them that they have power, power to begin with. Osita Wanevu, thank you so much for joining us. Such a great conversation. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was great. When we come back, we're going to hear directly from some of the protesters who are marching. And I was really glad I was able to go and hear what they had to say. Don't go anywhere. This is Love It or Leave It, and there's more on the way. Hey guys, Sean Hayes here. Jason Bateman, Will Arnett, and I had a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to sit down with not one, not two, but three presidents of the United States on our recent episode of Smartless. That's because President Biden, a returning guest, brought two of his favorite pals, former Presidents Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, all joined us for unforgettable conversation. It's a historic episode of Smartless as we pry into the minds of these remarkable leaders. We'll cover everything from their time in office, America's responsibilities in the world, and their personal passions in an episode full of some candid stories, insightful perspectives, and a few surprises along the way. Whether you're a political junkie or just curious about the inner workings of the Oval Office, this episode is a must-listen. Don't miss out on this incredible opportunity to hear from three of the most influential figures in recent American history. Follow Smartless on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen to Smartless ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. And we're back. Earlier this week at protest in Los Angeles, I went out and talked to some people. Elisa, our producer, went out and talked to some people and gathered some conversations we thought you might want to hear. Uh, Travis didn't go because he looks like a cop and he supports the cops. Let's go to that audio right now. Hey, do you mind if I ask a question just about why you're out here today? Fighting, equality, and the police, and discrimination. I'm here today in support of all the black and brown people. Um, we got to all stand together in order to fight this corrupted justice system. I believe that we should all be treated equal, and right now we're not treated equally. I have a 20-year-old son, black man. I'm protesting for him, for his rights. I was here on Sunday. I'm doing the same thing today. I'm here to stand by my brothers and sisters to stand against police brutality. We can't let this go on her, and we can't let this go unsaid. Because of the injustice that's been going on for many years, and I'm finally just, with George Floyd, I'm just finally just fed up. Him, Breonna Taylor, it just felt like a personal attack. Like, these are my people. Uh, so I'm a public defender, and we, my boyfriend and I are both public defenders. We came out for, like, a public defender walkout from court, but we also just wanted to come support the protests, support black lives, speak out against the killings that keep happening of unarmed black people in this country. As a public defender, I feel like we are kind of at the front lines of social justice and kind of being the last protection between the voiceless, the disenfranchised black and brown people in our community against the police, against the district attorney, against our fucked up justice system. Most of the people out here behind their feelings and emotions behind this injustice, this corrupt ass system. They call equality. The rest of us out here for a future. See this eight-month-old baby in my hand? I do. This is for her, future. It's not an overnight process, but this is what we're working towards, a change, equality, justice for everyone. Thanks, everybody, 
uh, who talked to us at the protest. When we come back, we'll be joined by DeRay uh, to talk about some police reforms that can help reduce violence right now. Hey, don't go anywhere. There's more of Love It or Leave It coming up. Ready for a new and exciting career challenge? At DHL Supply Chain, you're part of a team committed to creating innovative solutions for some of the biggest brands in the world. We're recognized as a best place to work, where people are valued, supported, and respected. DHL Supply Chain is hiring for a wide range of salaried operational and functional roles. Previous experience in logistics is welcome, but not required. All opportunities, no boundaries. DHL Supply Chain. Apply today at joindhl.com. And we're back. He's an activist, co-host of Pod Save the People, and one of the founders of Campaign Zero. Please welcome back Duray McKesson. It's good to see you. And uh, it's Pride, so happy Pride. It is Pride. I keep forgetting that like everything is closed. I know, no. Pride isn't going to be a thing. No, it is. It's just going to be digital. We're going to wear our parade on the inside, okay? Did you just make that up? I did, just now. It just happened. Uh, look, I want to. I'm glad you're here. You know, we we spoke uh, when you were on Pod Save America, but in the last few days, you've launched uh, with Brittany and with Sam and with Campaign Zero. Eight can't wait. So, can you just tell everybody what Eight Can't Wait is? So, when we zoom out a little bit, we we start with recognizing that the police have killed a lot of people. Right? Police kill an average 1,100 people a year. Have killed more people since the protests in 2014, not less. Uh, and I could go on and on. So, when we try and figure out what to do to stop it. It's a twofold strategy. One is reduce the power of the police. So as long as there are police, we reduce their power. Like we take as much power away from them to inflict harm in communities today. And the second thing we do is that we actually shrink the role of the police. And we do these at the same time. These are both and strategies, not either or strategies. So let me talk about shrinking the role first. So when we think about shrinking the role, we sort of enter this space from an idea of experts do what experts do. So when somebody's having a mental health crisis, who responds? Who should respond? An expert, right? Yeah. Are the police experts on mental health? No, right? So we should actually remove all those responsibilities, take all those resources and put them somewhere else. And we sort of keep doing that until we get down to sort of the barest bones, because like most of what people need is not really in the police department anyway. They need like a set of resources. Uh, some people talk about that as like defunding the police. There's a great campaign in LA that is rooted in defund. But it stems from this idea of like experts do what experts do. And, you know, the police are the first people to be like, I'm not a social worker. It's like, you're right. You shouldn't be responding to homelessness, right? We should have a whole set of people who deal with those issues that don't have a gun and that aren't police officers. The second bucket, and they can't wait, is in this idea of as long as there are police here, they should have dramatically less power than they have today. So we identified eight policies that went in place change the landscape of how police officers can inflict harm in communities. So it's things like exhausting all alternatives before using deadly force. It's things like making sure that there's a continuum so that the police department has sort of identified like when force can be used for what things, making a duty to intervene. So if an officer sees another officer engaged in wrongdoing, they actually have to do something. So they're like a host of things that we've identified that when these eight things are in play, like less people die. And in some ways it is harm reduction, right? It's like saying we can actually reduce harm today and let us do it today. And I think, you know, I've heard some people trying to put these ideas in conflict with each other that like, yeah. either you choose reduce the power or you shrink the role. And it's actually like you do them both at the same time. So as long as police exist, we have to reduce their power, you know? Yeah, no, I, I've seen some of that too. So, so, I mean, these are concrete steps and, and you can actually go to 8cantwait.org and you can go to your city, 
your area and you can say which of these eight policies are currently in place so you can start pushing your mayor, pushing your local leaders, pushing the police department to implement those policies. And, you know, according to what you've put out there, when these policies are in place, violence that results in death can be reduced by 72 percent. But I've seen some of the people criticizing this idea as saying, well, that's not enough. That's not good enough. You know, that's still too much harm. That's still too much danger that we're accepting in our communities. We need radical transformation of the role of police. Like, what do you say when people kind of push back on you uh, uh, for pushing these actions? Yeah, so we say that, you know, the reason why we call it Campaign Zero is that we believe we can live in a world where the police don't kill anybody, where we put zero resources towards policing because we put it in other places, uh, and where we sort of understand that we don't need to create a whole apparatus of people who have guns, right? So when people say that this isn't enough, we agree that it'll take a whole host of steps to get to the end of police violence and to move beyond the idea that the police are a necessary part of the public safety equation. We've never disagreed with that. We've said that there are a set of policies that like we can implement today, don't require legislation, don't require, like mayors can change these things today and they'll save people's lives today. And importantly, they do it without increasing the power of the police. They do it without increasing the uh, budget of the police and without increasing like the scope of services that they provide. This is about saying like, we can do it today. So I've seen some of those criticisms too. And, I, and I've been sort of like confused by some of the things that other people support that is not the end of police in, in and of themselves, right? Right. But it is an acknowledgement that we push and push knowing that we push from all the directions at once to get us to the place that we want to go. What I'm heartened by is that there are a lot of people who have never talked about the police before, who've talked about it can't wait. Uh, and what now we're trying to do, and this is only day two, which is so wild, right? Like it feels like this is day 3000, is we're trying to help people. I think that people are confused and I like, I own that I, I think the messaging on it, I think people, I didn't anticipate that people would feel like they had to choose one of the strategies, right? Right, right, right. People feel like they either are in the eight can't wait or they are in the defund the police, shrink the role. And it's like, no, 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 you're in both, right? We are just saying that like today there are police officers and we can reduce the power they have right now. So it is a both and, it's not an either or. And I think that got lost in our communication. So, uh, you know, look, you've been in this fight for a long time. And on the ground, we've seen in all 50 states and so many cities, a ton of organizing. Uh, it's work you're familiar with. What is the role that these organizers uh, can play in Campaign Zero? And like, how do you integrate this work into the campaign? We maintain the most comprehensive database of police violence in the country. So we support protesters all across the country and organizers who want data about their communities. We also maintain a scorecard of all the police departments in California. Uh, we maintain the only database of use of force policies in the country and uh, police union contracts in the country. So we are a resource hub for activists all across uh, so that they have the information they need to go into the room and be prepared immediately. So I think about our work in Austin, helping them get the police union contract voted down. I think about our work in a host of places that has allowed people to sort of understand uh, the system in a way that allows them to walk into the room and make demands that are like focused and clear and uh, what's really powerful, too, is that so many activists that pushed us have helped us think differently about the work. And because we manage this large data set, we're able to do analyses like, you know, we do that one analysis that's like uh, how many days did the police not kill somebody in a given year, right? Like we do these sort of interesting cuts of the data to help people see the consistency with which the police are violent. I just had a conversation with a writer, uh, Osito Wenevu, about just how much forgetting has gone on even since Ferguson. It's amazing. You see people talking about how 
oh, they can't believe reporters are being arrested. Reporters were arrested at Ferguson. You see people worried that, you know, the protests will be marred politically by some of the um, sort of unrest that follows or some of the aggressive actions by police that cause there to be uh, confrontations or police being aggressive and then denying that uh, um, those actions and blaming it on the protesters. And all of that happened in Ferguson. You were a witness and part of that in Ferguson. Do you think that what's happening now is different? Do you think that this will stay with people, that the effects of these protests are, are in some ways larger or different, that more people are participating, more people are watching? Has this movement grown, I guess is my question. Yeah, you know, every every night I go out this go round, I see a whole different crowd of people who were there before, right? This was not the people who sort of identified as activists and identified as protesters. I think there's a whole new wave of people being radicalized. Uh, there are people I know personally who who were always like, they supported our work and they supported me and they support other people. They had never really been in proximity to the violence of the police though. Like it was sort of a thing they saw on TV and, and they sort of supported people like me and a host of other activists. And now those people, they, they saw it, right? They saw yeah. like the reporter get tear gas. They saw the person get hit with a rubber. I have a friend who thought he was gonna die because he got hit with this, at such close range with a rubber bullet. I have another friend who permanently lost her eye because she got shot, right? So I think that there was a part of it because the protests were the wildest in Ferguson and they were bad in other places, but you know, we were in the street for 400 days, whereas now the protests are wild in like a host of places, right? Yeah. It's like, you just see the police be amped at like 3 p.m. in a way that is just so different, you know? I do think that's different. I think that like there's a generation of people who are like, you know what, I didn't really believe it and now they get it. I feel like for me, even just observing this, that I, I feel like, you know, I've known you, I've known your work for some time. You know, we've we've talked on this show. We've we've I've I've been someone who sort of paid attention. But I think that there is these two ways of knowing something. You can know it and then you can really know it, really internalizing it, either by seeing it yourself or by seeing this footage. It's remarkable how just how much these protests have elicited from the police a response that proves the point, you know? So much of the news uh, covers the big cities, right? But when we look at the data, uh, police violence is decreasing in cities, but it's increasing in rural and suburban areas. And I'm interested in like what's happening there, right? What happens when the media is so coastal? It's so LA, it's so New York, it's so DC, that I worry that we're missing a whole set of things that are happening in rural America where people are being killed by the police in record numbers and suburban America. Uh, so that has been on my mind as we think, you know, even in the conversation about solutions, most of what you heard has been in like a coastal city, right? Yeah. yeah. Like, when we think about the sheer raw, like the raw numbers of the problem, it's not in cities right now. Like cities have gotten a little better, but suburban communities and rural communities have not. Uh, so I am interested in, like, I, I, I want to understand that better, you know? Before I let you go, where can people go? Just tell people what they can do to get involved. They can go to acantwait.org, but what else can they do to kind of support the work right now? They can go to acantwait.org. Uh, you know, there are a lot of people, if you're in LA, the uh, people's budget is uh, the rallying cry around shrinking the role of the police and doing it dramatically. So you can look at that resource. Uh, and there are incredible people organizing all around and, and would love to help connect you to them. And uh, and that's that's really good work, you know? Like, I think this is the long haul. And I think that we're in a moment, John, where like, where I think we can get some wins that'll last for a long time, right? I think that we can get some wins that really change the game. And I'm excited about that. Uh, well, thank you, DeRay, for coming on to talk to us about it. And I also just want to say, you know, this is the second time we've spoken this week. And, and I know how relentless this work has been for you for a very long time emotionally and also just 
uh, in terms of your time, in terms of your effort. And I think at a time when a lot of people feel very bad, they feel sad, they've been isolated, they feel angry about what they're seeing. I just want to say that I find it uh, remarkable how not optimistic, but energized you are by the work, by what we can actually do. So thank you for that. I appreciate it. When we come back, we'll hear from listeners and end on a high note. Don't go anywhere. This is Love It or Leave It, and there's more on the way. Ready for a new and exciting career challenge? At DHL Supply Chain, you're part of a team committed to creating innovative solutions for some of the biggest brands in the world. We're recognized as a best place to work, where people are valued, supported, and respected. DHL Supply Chain is hiring for a wide range of salaried operational and functional roles. Previous experience in logistics is welcome, but not required. All opportunities, no boundaries. DHL Supply Chain. Apply today at joindhl.com. And we're back. Thanks, everybody, for listening. I know this was a serious show, but I felt like it was important that we dive into some of these issues this week. And because we all need it this week, here it is, this week's high note submitted by you, the listeners. Hi, love it. This is Amanda and Ian from Salt Lake City, Utah. And we're calling with our highlight for the week, which is the fact that we graduated from medical school and um, from public health college. So now We will be a physician and an epidemiologist, and we're really excited, and we hope that everybody who's protesting the same faith, and we want you all to know that we stand with you and that Black Lives Matter. Hi. um, So I am just leaving a protest uh, in New York City, and what gave me hope this week is at one point we passed Mount Sinai Hospital, and all the uh, hospital workers were standing outside for us clapping as we marched by, and we stopped and clapped for them and chanted thank you. And uh, it's a pretty dark world out there, and being able to witness that just gave me a lot of hope. Hi, love it. Um, this is Kirby from Richmond, Virginia. And my high note is that after days of peaceful protests in the capital of the Confederacy, they're taking down the monument of Robert E. Lee. This has been a huge statue in Monument Avenue. Um, not only that, but they're implementing a citizen review board of the police. And so we're really making progress. And if we can do it here in Richmond, Virginia, where the Confederacy thrived, we can do it everywhere. Um, so, yay! I love it. This is Kirsten from Seattle, Washington. And my high note this week is that my first act of community organizing was to adopt Florida through the Vote Save America Adopt campaign. And I was actually able to get more than 10 friends and family members to adopt across all six states. And they've actually uh, sent it on to their friends as well. Thanks, everybody, for listening. It is 150 days until the election. Sign up at Vote Save America right now to defeat Trump, keep the House, and win back the Senate. Thank you to Osita and DeRay for joining. Thank you to our listeners. Thanks to everybody uh, at the protests who talked to us. Thank you to the protesters on the ground all over the country. Thank you to our grocery workers and truck drivers and delivery people. Thank you to our doctors and nurses. And thank you to our whole staff working to keep this show going out and Crooked going strong. Have a great weekend. Love It or Leave It is a product of Crooked Media. It is written and produced by me, John Lovett, Elisa Gutierrez, Lee Eisenberg, and our head writer, former Mike Bloomberg speechwriter, Travis Helwig. 
Jocelyn Kaufman, Alicia Carroll, and Peter Miller are the writers. Bill Lance is our audio editor, and Stephen Colon is our sound engineer. Sydney Rapp is our assistant producer, and August Dichter is our intern. Our theme song is written and performed by Sure Sure. Thanks to our designers, Jesse McLean and Jamie Skeel, for creating and running all of our visuals, which you can't see because this is a podcast, and to our digital producers, Norm Malconian and Yale Freed, for filming and editing video each week so you can. Ready for a new and exciting career challenge? At DHL Supply Chain, you're part of a team committed to creating innovative solutions for some of the biggest brands in the world. We're recognized as a best place to work, where people are valued, supported, and respected. DHL Supply Chain is hiring for a wide range of salaried operational and functional roles. Previous experience in logistics is welcome, but not required. All opportunities, no boundaries. DHL Supply Chain. Apply today at joindhl.com.